Hello and welcome to the Symposium of the Lotus Eaters. This is episode 31, and we're joined by Bo. Right. Hello, Bo. Right. And we're going to talk about Cicero's natural law. Now, I must say that I'm a sort of a fan of Cicero. Not me most people are, mm. but uh, as you have said, that there are some people who really dislike him. Mm. Mm. Especially some people who don't like his, you could say, his traditionalism and his defense of a sort of aristocracy and also some people who sided more with Caesar, at least intellectually, if they're still alive or were in alive at th that point. So I think it's good if we, ask, if we talk about who Cicero was, what his writings were, and talk about his, in a sense, republicanism and his, his place in the natural law tradition in ethics. Because it's, he, I think he deserves a much uh, more prestigious place in the history of philosophy than he's awarded. And then we could end by talking about the dream of Scipio, because I think that it's really interesting to talk about it, because mm. a, uh, a lot of the, the time, Cicero is, is talking like someone who has the four cardinal virtues of antiquity in mind, justice, courage, temperance, and wisdom. And he did think that wisdom was sort of a way of perfecting reason. Wisdom was perfected reason that enabled us to become just and achieve moral excellence. And a lot of the th times, wisdom is tied with the idea of finding our place in the universe. And I think that the dream of Scipio is a wonderful mm. uh, sort of myth or way to portray what our view and our place in the universe. Mm. So let me ask you, Bo, because I think that when it comes to uh, history, you're the person to, to ask. Mm. In essence, who was Cicero? Right. Why are yeah. people fascinated so much with him? Yeah, well, I'm a massive fan, yeah. fanboy of Cicero. Most people are, if you read him, um, and we've got a lot that survives from Cicero, fantastic amount, really. Our, our impression of sort of first century BC Rome is largely based around the writings of Cicero. Um, so, yeah, he was an extremely influential person in all sorts of ways. Well, he's one of those few people that is... Um, an academic, a philosopher, if you like, and a statesman, an orator, an advocate, a lawyer, and then a statesman, very senior statesman in the end, where he rose to be consul. Um, so sort of many things, and also what he said, his voice yep. survives from the ancient world, from the days of Caesar. And he was very so, eloquent. Yeah. Yeah. Because you could say that there are many people after him who were simultaneously politicians and philosophers, mm. but they weren't so skilled orators. I think that right, yeah. when we are thinking of orators in the of antiquity, at least the two or three people that come to mind are Pericles, Demosthenes, and Cicero. Right, yeah. Quite often he's compared with Demosthenes, yes. quite often. Yes. Um, Whereas where you mentioned that some people don't like him, um, well, what that comes from is um, it being forced down the throat of schoolboys. Okay. You know how some people don't like Shakespeare yes. because they were sort of forced to read it at school Yes. and hated it then and then just carry that hatred through the rest of their life? Well, all throughout the sort of 18th and 19th century, even early into the early 20th century, if you went to public school, in yes. Britain anyway at least, 
you start Latin, one of the first things you're sort of forced to translate is quite often Caesar, his, his, um, his account of the Gallic Wars. And then a bit later, you're forced to translate Cicero loads. Yes. I mean, his name was Marcus Tullius Cicero, and he became such a sort of ubiquitous part of your childhood, of your school days, that many people knew him as Tully. He's yes. like a friend. Yes. Like all schoolboys, public schoolboys, uh, will be aware of Tully. That, that's how close a relationship you have with him. Um, now, just like Shakespeare, lots of people hated that. They hated Latin, hated yes. having to do Latin. So they sort of resented and hate Cicero because of that. And so there's this strain of thought, particularly in the 18th and 19th century. Um, maybe it's a knee-jerk reaction. I think it is. It's like a fashionable thing to say you don't like Cicero. Okay. So I've got a few quotes. We'll get to them later when it comes up sort of organically. But why from, was that? Was it a sign of, you know, being rebellious or, yeah, or maybe. being going against the current? Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. so. Because I don't think the criticisms are all that fair. So one of the greatest classicists that ever lived is a, a German called Theodore Mommsen. I've mentioned Mommsen before. Um, 19th century, died right at the beginning of the 20th century. And um, his many, many volumed book, The History of Rome, um, uh, won like the Nobel Prize for Literature. And during his lifetime, he was considered one of the greatest classicists. And he hates Cicero. Well, hates is a bit strong, but he's got some pretty cutting criticisms of Cicero, which I don't agree with. Yes. Uh, but I want to read some of them when they come up organically. So okay. it's a jumping off point. So is that fair? Um, and as far as I can tell, well, Mommsen was like the most curmudgeonly old buffer you can imagine. It's like so overly harsh in his criticism, sort of crazily harsh in his criticism. Um, but like all historians, they're not sort of perfect judges. So Mommsen loved Caesar, Julius Caesar. Yes. Seems to have almost been in love with him. He's saying he's like, he's the greatest man ever lived, that sort of thing. He never did anything wrong. He's sort of the greatest Roman. He, so he loved Caesar. And where Cicero and Caesar were on and off enemies, but ultimately political enemies, Mommsen then hates, like he hates Pompey. Yes. Um, and so I think maybe uh, Mommsen's view of Cicero is coloured by that. But nonetheless, um, if any normal person reads Cicero, um, usually you like him because it's written so well. And just one last thing to say on that, I know I've been talking for quite a while here, but um, just to mention how much survives of Cicero. Um, there's treatises on, like what, uh, on the nature of the Republic, on the nature of laws, which we're going to talk about. There's like over 800 letters. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of the passages from the, uh, the Repu his Republic and his laws, they're missing. They're yeah. quite fragmentary, it's but true. we do still a fair bit. We do have them, a lot, right? and we can surmise what he thought. There's also a lot of his speeches, or some of his speeches. The Philippics, his set of speeches against Mark Antony, his speech against Catiline during the Catiline conspiracy. But those letters, I think, a lot of them, a lot of them are just to friends. Uh, he had a great friend Atticus. He wrote some to Brutus, the Brutus wrote some to Pliny, um, but so where they're sort of, it's not a political speech, 
Yes. It's not a, an academic treatise. It's just a, f a letter to your friend. So they're like quite candid. And um, it's sort of like seeing behind the scenes, if you like. Yes. We see Cicero the human as opposed to just Cicero the politician. And the history, the, the sort of the characters of the people at the time. So, for example, in history, um, it's more, it, the, the, the light of history is more or less dark. Yeah. And like certain periods of history are lit up, effectively lit up for us looking back at them because we've got lots of information, lots of sources and things. So, for example, the age of Julius Caesar and Augustus is, is lit up like a candle tree. Yes. That candle tree lit up like a Christmas tree. Um, because, apart from anything else, because of the letters of Cicero, we know what the actual people were like and what they were doing, their machinations behind the scenes. Let's just place Cicero in his historical context. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he was born in 106 BC. Right, yeah. In yeah. Arpinum. Yep. which is southwest from Rome. About 50, 60 miles outside Rome, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, he died in 43 BC. So he lived in the late Roman Republic. Mm, right, exactly. So the, the very end. Yeah, and the last days almost. He didn't have a good ending, from what I remember. He, he was assassinated. Was that, yeah. uh, but it seemed that he did live his life in his own ter on his own terms. And it seems to me that he did practice what he preached and he died for what he preached. Mostly, yeah. So Mostly. let us ask, what are the highlights of his life? Okay. Let's say the political ones, yeah. and then we're going to talk about the more, more philosophical ones. But let's say, what was his involvement into uncovering the conspiracy of uh, Catiline? And right, okay, when yeah. was that? Was that? Yeah. Uh, w when was that? Uh, the Catalan conspiracy is this, isn't it the 60s BC? I think so. Or the 50s? Uh, when was it's it? It's somewhere been? Yeah, I think it's in the 60s. Anyway, so I can't remember must the exact have been date, there but... in his late 40s or early 50s. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. Okay. Um, so he lived through really tumultuous times. I mean, yeah. to put it mildly. Yeah. So, um, so. The Catalan conspiracy is probably it's among the most famous points in his life. Um, so he was a young man when there were the civil wars between Marius and Sulla. Yeah. So he was a young man in his sort of late twenties, early thirties, it would have been, I suppose, when um, when the dictator Sulla became uh, sort of the military tyrant of Rome. Um, and as you say, he was a, a new man. Yes. So his family didn't have a long history of, of being senators and consuls and things. Was so, he the first of his family yeah, yeah, to yeah. become a politician? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Um, so he had to, he really had to do it all on merit. Um, uh, so he was an advocate, I, like a lawyer. Um, and he made his name in a few higher profile cases. He took on cases that other people were scared to because um, corruption and bribery was so rife in Rome um, that you couldn't always guarantee that if you've, if you've got right on your side and you're a great advocate that you'll probably win. You, could, you had no sorts of guarantees like that. 
you could uh, earn a knife on your back or something like that. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still the case today that occasionally yeah. um, prosecutors will get murdered. Yes. Occasionally. Well, back in... And definitely uh, harassed. You have you know, bombs right. exploding. In other areas, you have assassinations and you can watch them on video because they, they, they're in the middle of the road. Cameras get them. So mm. For instance, I think that in Latin America, mm. we frequently have footage of things like that. Yeah, sometimes in Italy and Sicily, yeah. uh, a prosecutor will be murdered by the, by the mob because he's yeah. prosecuting them. Yeah. Or a judge, very occasionally a judge will get yeah. killed or blown up or something. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, back in Roman times, it was, a, it, was quite, it was quite common. And also they had a thing, just to mention, if you, if you were a particular prosecutor um, and, the, and you bought a, a false prosecution, you suffered for it. Yeah. In fact, they branded you on the head with the letter K to, uh, because the Latin word for being sort of a false accuser began with a K. So you, as the lawyer, tried to prosecute someone and failed, i.e. you tried to convict an innocent man, you got branded on the head. So their, versions of, their version of law is quite different to ours. And it was completely corrupt in the sense that, well, not completely, but it was largely corrupt in the sense that the politics of the day yeah. really, really dictated quite often what the jury or the magistrate decided. It didn't really matter how good your argument might be. If the guy on trial is uh, an enemy of yours politically, you just find against him. Anyway, anyway, I'm yeah. just getting sidetracked so, a little bit here. But, the, um, he loved adrenaline yeah. in a nutshell. Yeah. So one of the most famous cases he had as a young man during the age of Sulla, and anyone who doesn't know, Sulla was a no-holes-barred tyrant. This is the generation just before Caesar, where Sulla had a civil war with Marius, in the end ultimately won it, and when he won it, he, he got into Rome, he reversed all the reforms Marius had done and killed all his enemies. Yeah. Literally put up a kill list, a list of prescriptions, um, nailed it to the Senate door. Here's a list of every man who... It's now lawful just to kill. If you see him at any moment in the streets of Rome, it's totally lawful for you to kill him. Yeah. And so that's sort of as extreme as sort of political repression gets, right? You don't mess with Sulla. If you become an enemy of Sulla politically or, or in any sense, he's probably going to have you killed. Either way, it would be an extremely, uh, you'd have an extremely sort of anxious time of it, making an enemy of Sulla. Anyway, yeah. No one wants to defend anyone that Sulla's accused of something in the courts because it's, it's almost crazy. You'd have to be really brave. And you anyway, get a K on your forehead. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or just before the trial even finished, you just f find yourself murdered in the street for daring to do such a thing. And anyway, Cicero did do that. Um, there was one of Sulla's right hand men, one of his main captains, uh, was it a, a Chrysogonus, a guy called Chrysogonus was extorting people out of their farms, out of their money, and murdering people, and then accusing their own family members of murdering them, and just like really horrible stuff. And um, no one would defend these people in the courts, but then Cicero did, and won, yeah. sort of because d despite how corrupt I said it was, and how rife bribery was, it wasn't 100%. So sometimes, if you're a very, very good advocate, you could sort of win the day 
And that's how Cicero sort of first made his name, is in the cults. Okay, so there is a question here that I think is interesting to ask and discuss. Yeah. So Cicero is known for supporting the, Repu the Republican form of government. And, uh, but you're describing a very corrupt society, especially the, the late Roman Republic. So why was Cicero defending that regime? Could it be the case that, or that form of, okay. form of constitution? Could it be the case that he was super optimistic about it just because he won that case? And that, the reason I'm asking is because the way you describe it, that doesn't seem to be the norm. That seemed sure. to be the exception of the exception. Yeah. yeah so yeah. as you said, uh, Sulla was uh, particularly tyrannical and uh, that would imply that people who go against him, they lose. So could it be the case that he was overly optimistic and he was judging by his case and projecting what, what applied in his case to the whole of the Roman Republic at that time, because mm. he seemed to be defending that constitution. Was it a relic of the past or was he right in doing so? Yeah, I think it's right. So it, during the age of Sulla, yeah, already the Republic has suffered, the very nature of the Republic has suffered some sort of very serious wounds. Yes. Um, so Sulla, on some level, has the the rule of law has broken down on some levels the like sort of the sullen settlement in rome is an aberration to a true republican so yeah cicero was sort of trying to fight against that his view his dream of rome was an older version yes yeah he he would you know the people romans of cicero's age would look back to the days of the gracchi or earlier and say that's how it should be we yes. need to get back to those days. We're living through an aberration right now. Obviously, we know it got way worse under Caesar and Pompey and Mark Antony and Augustus, and eventually the, the Republic was killed. Yes. But still in, in, in its last years, while Cicero lived, people like Cicero, and perhaps you're right to call it over-optimistic. Perhaps it is, probably is really, sort of an over-optimism. But they'd hoped that it could still be reversed, that we could get back to the sort of the days of the Gracchi or earlier. There's, a, yeah. there's another point to raise here. Could it be the case in defense of Cicero mm. to say that it is a convention to talk about that period as the late Roman Republic mm. because um, historians and you know history aficionados, they want to somehow put an order into a history that, as you mentioned before, is predominantly dark. And one way of doing so is by creating a sort of catalogue. And we say, okay, this century is the century of, you know, the, of Caesar. The previous century is the century of, the, of Scipio, whatever. Yeah. So could it be the case that Cicero would say, but, but that is not really a republic that I'm living, because the republic is, as you said, the republic of the old. And what I'm saying right now is the death of the republic and it's actually another regime. It's a sort of, let's say, constitution or a form of society where the whim of Sulla is, let's say, law. Mm. And that's not what our republic is supposed to be. Mm. 
So could it be the case that he would answer to these questions in that manner? He would say that that was not particularly a Republican constitution. It was an aberration. Mm. It might actually remind us of the late Tarquins. Mm -hmm. But, and you know, the, the confusion is generated because people refer to it as the late Roman Republic. Mm. Whereas Cicero would say, if you look upon society, it's not really republic mm. or republican in its constitution. What, what do you think of this? It's an interesting question, and it's exactly yeah. the sort of question that historians write whole books about, argue about endlessly. So I would say this, is that it's sort of up to you out there to make up your own mind, really. Yeah. When the Roman Republic died, I've got my view. Um, so for example, I would love uh, it if you want yeah. uh, to yeah. share it. Sure, yeah, yeah. So, for example, just to say, on some level, I, will, I was doing a thing with Carl the other day in an epoch yeah. about Attila, which is like the 450s AD. And they would still refer to Rome as a republic. Yeah. Now, that is complete nonsense, a complete fiction. <laughs> it's sort of everyone knew it was fiction. It had been a military monarchy for centuries. But on paper, they still call it a republic. Sometimes you will find in the late Byzantine period, a thousand years later, they still call it the republic. Yes. Okay, complete nonsense. Everyone knows that's complete yes. nonsense. Okay. But, but that's at the outer limit of what you could argue, you could attempt to argue. But that, um, that, so, doesn't this show the kind of symbol, symbolic status that yeah, the notion symbolic, of a republic has on people? Yeah. And they wanted to incorporate yeah. it and just name everything after it and incorporate it, even if it were, they had nothing to do with it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Now, at the other end of the scale, you, some of the, the sort of one of the earliest points you could say the Republic died is the age of Tiberius Gracchus, the elder of the two Gracchi brothers. When Tiberius Gracchus, as a tribune of the people, sort of overrode for the first time um, a, quite a few constitutional norms, um, you sort of as a tribune you did have the right to sort of veto government sort of veto senate the, the senate and the assembly of the people you sort of you did have the technically the right to do it but no one had done it for centuries and uh tiberius gracchus did that <clears throat> and so at, at the earliest some historians argue that it was tiberius gracchus and what's that like the 130s bc is it or even earlier I can't remember off the top of my head, but even earlier, you could say, oh, ah, some people say that's the moment the Republic died. Yes. The very first time Tiberius Gracchus vetoed the Senate. Now, personally, my view, that is, that's too early. That's like maybe some sort of constitutional crisis or the first of many waves of constitutional crisis. And civil but, wars that followed. Yeah, all sorts of civil wars. I think a lot of people say that when the, the first triumvirate, which is Caesar, Pompey and Crassus, when they decided, which is during the age of um, Cicero. Cicero, when they decided that between those three, and in fact Cicero himself was invited to join the triumvirate, yeah, he, he could didn't. have been a tetrarchy, yeah. but he decided to decline that. Yeah. Um, anyway, lots of historians say that's the moment when the Republic died, mm. because between uh, Pompey, Caesar and Crassus, they could do all the business of government between them, all policy making. The, 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 seat, the, the real crux of all power lay with those three guys, completely outside, really completely outside all the institutions of the Republic. So a lot of historians say that moment. 
I personally put it a little bit later. A lot of historians put it a lot later. I put it a little bit later just to say that I think the Republic sort of had a heart attack in that moment or yeah. died, but then you could argue wasn't necessarily going to be dead forever. It still could have been just about probably brought back from the brink of death there. You could have maybe somehow reversed things. I personally put put it at the at the death of Augustus. Yeah. Because when Augustus died, because Augustus was still, obviously, he was a an emperor. He was an autocrat. Um, but he was still very, very much pretending that the Republic was absolutely still alive and kicking. We'd still have cons consular elections and the public assemblies. And even though he held all the power, the sort of the norms of, of the Republic were still ticking over. And so, and I'm being very generous here. I'm trying to put it at the latest possible moment I can. Okay. But when Augustus died, all the powers he had accrued to himself, this sort of suite of powers, uh, sort of the powers of a tribune and uh, the Pontifex Maximus and uh, just awarding yourself consulships year after year after year and loads and loads of other things, a whole package of powers. They were handed down as one in a hereditary sense to Tiberius, his adopted son. At that moment, and that's the latest possible moment I personally put it, at that moment, surely the Republic's dead. Yeah. I've never seen any argument that you could say the Republic wasn't dead by that moment. Like I say, most people put it earlier than that. Yeah. But I say it's absolutely 100% stone dead at that moment. Anyway, so for Cicero, yeah. for Cicero, he's living through the last days of it, really, like the last years of it, really, isn't he? Yes. He's witnessing that it's death. Now, let's flesh this out a bit, because there is a really interesting way to think of the Republican constitution, or at least the Republican kind of constitutions, because there are many republics and there are many uh, Republican states, mm. as you say. Many, uh, we could have uh, states that uh, want to call themselves republic, and you could say that it, to a degree they are, but they're not uh, structured in the same way. Yeah, yeah. So, there's a question here because th there is there's a lot of deliberation about what is the best form of constitution. And we see this in, I think, in every society. Especially in Western societies, there is more deliberation about it. And we have more texts that talk about it. So, for instance, I just have um, an idea of an exception in mind. I think that in Herodotus, in the histories, there's a passage in Book 3 called the speech of Otanis, where I think there is a sort of debate between the Persian king... In Herodotus? Yes. Right, yeah. Between the Persian king, Otanis, a general, and another satrap, I think. And um, obviously the king defends monarchy, mm. <laughs> yeah. uh, the satrap defends a uh, sort of oligarchy, and Otanis, if I'm not mistaken, is in favor of rule of the many. But I don't know if that was actual or Herodotus made it up and he just wanted to just portray this as something that mm. happened in the Persian court. Mm. But there's a question that you constantly see, for instance, in Plato and Aristotle and people constantly deliberated about what is the best form of constitution. Mm. And uh, mm. obviously we have people like Plato who imagine his Callipolis and uh, he did say, though, that that's not going to last. 
it's not going to be everlasting. And then he had an idea of how constitutions are uh, degenerating. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing is that let's talk a bit about how this starts from Plato to talk about how it continues to Aristotle, how it continues to Polybius, and then how the idea of the Republican form mm -hmm. of constitution as being the best one is grounded on. So Plato is drawing a sort of parallel between the soul and the way that souls are structured and guided and operate and the state. And he said that, for instance, the best form of state corresponds to the best form of soul, which is the virtuous soul, which is the soul that possesses the four cardinal virtues and in which reason is dominant. Because I think that for him, temperance and temperance was the dominance of reason in the soul. But he did say that politically speaking, and also we live in the material world, there is a sort of, let's say, degeneration. Mm. And you cannot expect the sort of perfection that we can strive for and attain with our noose into the abstract realm, for instance, of logic and morality and truth, beauty and goodness in the material realm. The material realm is messy mm. and there will be a degeneration. So mm. even the most perfect constitution will degenerate. And he said that then there's going to be a democracy, which he thought it was something that corresponded to the Spartan one. That was the rule of honor. Everyone went about honor. So who are we talking about here? Cicero or about Plato? Plato saying this, right? Yeah, yeah but yeah, Cicero yeah. was very much in, um, influenced by Plato. Yeah, yeah, right. And yeah, he yeah. modeled his two dialogues, the Republic and the Laws, on the Republic of Plato and the right. Laws of Plato. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. Plato for Cicero is incredibly important. Yeah, yeah. So, and then he said that... Another fair critic, he says, just copying it, actually. I don't think he's copying. I think that he is sort of um, using a very similar structure, but he's very honest about it, and he is paying homage to Plato. But I think that we can give another interpretation of this, that he does seem to think that basically this is what he wants to bring to Rome. Yeah. He wants to bring the best of Greek philosophy into, into Rome and to popularize it. So back to Plato, he said that the constitutions are degenerating. And then from democracy, we have a sort of oligarchy. Then we have a democracy and then we have tyranny. Mm. And then, mm. you know, there, there is a sort of downward spiral. Mm. Uh, Aristotle was a bit more empirical. And he said that, you know, if, if you look at constitutions, they don't all follow the, the rhythm or the cycle that Plato is talking about or the downward um, the downward uh, direction, yeah. you see all sorts of constitutions changing into other sorts of constitutions. So Aristotle is always saying, let us look at the facts. It's not so simple. But then we have Polybius, who is also very much influenced by Aristotle and his support of kind of mixed constitutions in practice. And Polybius had this idea of a, the anacyclosis, that he said that it's a default idea. It can be halted, but he said that Usually you have a king, mm. you have people who live in very adverse conditions and they organize around the king. And the king is virtuous and thinks of the good of the whole. But then at some point kings, especially when they have descendants who weren't 
born in and bred into the conditions that the kings were born and bred into mm. so by implication they they become a bit spoiled and they don't mm. cultivate the virtues that the kings cultivated the previous kings they become tyrants mm. and they start mm. ruling for themselves mm. and that sort of leads into the the few virtuous ones who overthrow the tyrant mm -hmm. they establish a sort of aristocracy mm -hmm. then they get corrupt themselves they become oligarchs mm -hmm. Then the people, they make a violent rebellion against the oligarchs yeah. and they establish a sort of uh, polity. But then when this sort of polity starts thinking of only of itself and not of the common good, it becomes into a democracy and a ty ty tyranny. And tyranny. And this leads into the adverse conditions that make it imperative for a king to arise right, yeah. and the whole and cycle so to begin. Yeah. So there's the question as to what is the, the best constitution? What is the one that is simultaneously more just and more lasting? Mm. And Republicans and Polybius himself, he didn't think that what, that was a necessary process. He thought that the best form of government is a mixed constitution and that is more everlasting. That, mm. Not everlasting, that is more lasting than other constitutions. And that is where they have the separation of powers coming into it. And they said that there is a sort of mixture between monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy, or polity. Let's call it whatever, like that's mm. semantics. Mm. But, and, and that is where most Republicans are claiming that their form of constitution is the best because it's simultaneously more just and more lasting because it is much more able to halt the degenerative tendencies of each of the other constitutions. Now, as we, as we know from history, the Republic itself was prone to destruction by corruption and by other stuff. But the, there is a question as to whether it was more lasting than other sort of of constitutions. Mm. So Cicero was defending this kind of republicanism. And I want, I want to say, uh, when it comes to Cicero and Caesar, because they, I think that this is something that very often gets overlooked, that in the, right now we use the terms dictator and tyrant as synonymous. Mm. But it seems to me that in the Roman Republic, it, it wasn't exactly the case. There were, uh, a sort of dictator was sort of the, called the master of the people and was given special powers, but for a limited amount of time. Mm. Was it not the case that Cicero had, didn't have exactly an issue with that? He had an issue with Caesar, for instance, or Catalan before, but especially with Caesar when he wanted to become a sort of dictator for life. Mm. Wasn't that the issue? Yeah. Yeah, so in the ancient world, both, well, so the word tyrant and dictator for ancient Rome have got very, very different sort of connotations to what we mean by them. We would use them interchangeably. Yeah. Someone like Mao or Stalin or Hitler or Mussolini, they're a, they're a dictatorial tyrant. It's just the same. Well, okay, no, for a start, the word tyrant, um, it just means an autocrat. You could be a very, very good, benevolent tyrant that everyone loved. Okay, so that's the first thing to say about the ancient world, the use of the word tyrant. Secondly, specifically in Rome, to be a dictator was an actual official um, post. And it was just given out in extraordinary times. So, for example, well, the, 
famous one is um, Cincinnatus. Yes. When you needed one man to control the state, because Rome in the Roman Republic could have two consoles, quite often that's not the most ideal, most efficient thing to do, particularly in wartime, um, to have two men like that, two minds controlling policy. You might want one great person to conduct the state. You might really need that. And so you give them the powers of a dictator for a, a, for a set period of time, um, like deliberately. So again, it doesn't have the connotations that we might think of it as being just, by definition, terrible and bad. Yeah. And you're an evil person if you're a dictator. Didn't necessarily have those. Um, but then, just say about Caesar, um, but then, but later, hundreds and hundreds of years after Cincinnatus, people sort of coveted, wanted to try and make themselves a dictator for personal reasons, because they were drunk on power and etc. But So when Caesar... Uh, made himself dictator in the first instance for five years and then think a bit later for 10 years and then ultimately for life. It was at that point where um, his assassins decided that he must, that he should, he's not going to be allowed to live any longer. Yeah. Because, yeah, he's that now dominating power. Um, so, yeah, both the word tyrant and dictator, specifically in Rome, but in all the ancient world is... Quite diff a little bit different anyway to how we use those words. I think we have um, the the um, one of the major turning points come with Plato and Aristotle, who sort of use the term tyrant as synonymous with evil and synonymous with uh, ruling for your own benefit. And there is a famous debate whether Periander of Corinth, who was the tyrant of Corinth, should count as one of the seven sages. And conventionally, he is counted as one of the seven sages, but Aristotle says, no, we shouldn't count him as one of the seven sages because he was a tyrant and tyrants are not wise. Yeah, I mean, That's... in the ancient world, there seems to be some, um, not everyone thought like that. So, for example, there were various tyrants, think of like Agathocles, tyrants all over the Grecian world, uh, or the Mediterranean world. And some of them were adored by their people and seemed to be very just rulers. And I think in the ancient world, a tyrant just means an autocrat. Yeah. Now, I must say, and like Aristotle and lots of others, most of the time that's bad, or at least it's unjust. Yeah. To prevent other men from having a say <laughs> is nearly always unfair and unjust. But not always, not by, not sort of not by definition, though. Um, for example, sometimes if there's an anarchy or there's just mob rule, it's actually in nearly everyone's interest to have a tyrant. Better to have a tyrant, hopefully a good one, a philosopher king type one. It's better that than true anarchy, just like, you know, like biker gangs in Mad Max. Yeah. You'd rather have a king than Mad Max biker gangs, right? <laughs> I mean, usually most people agree on that, right? So, um, uh, so there you go. But you earlier on you talked about like what's the best republic, what's the best nation, what's the best settlement, best constitution. Well, I think. It's interesting to look at the example of the great republic of our age, the United States of America, and their founding fathers, what they had in mind, who they looked at. Cicero was paramount in their minds. Every one of the founding fathers would be absolutely aware of Cicero and what yeah. he wrote, and Plato. And uh, I think Polybius. Polybius probably, was yeah, really, yeah, yeah. as a historian, yeah. Yeah. And they very, were very, very deliberately trying to create 
the best best version of of a republic they could because all republics in the ancient world eventually destroyed themselves. Yeah. All of them. Um, and there's that, that cycle you were talking about there that particularly Polybius talks about and Cicero talks a lot about as well, where, you know, uh, a, a monarchy degenerates into a, a, a tyranny, a, I mean tyranny in the modern sense, which will then almost certainly fall into a type of oligarchy because people won't put up with a tyrant indefinitely, which will may or may not, but probably will degenerate into some sort of, um, well, a more and more dis- dispersed, diffused oligarchy where more and more people are involved, eventually turns into just a mob. Yeah. You end up with just mobs. <laughs> yes. Um, and then maybe, hopefully, one strong man comes along and puts an end to that and you start all over again. Um, but how can you find that? It's a great question. It's a, an amazing question. Really. How can you find that sweet spot? I'd just like to quickly say that, you know, you look at the United States and you look at, in my opinion anyway, how fantastic, fantastically successful the American Republic has been until quite recently, until fairly recently. One of the first, in fact, it was the first article I wrote for Lotus Eaters a couple of years ago now about the Gracchi, about how the Roman Republic was seemingly ticking along as it had done for hundreds of years. And then very quickly, there were a few chinks in the armour and then it all starts falling apart. And, and where it had been fine for hundreds of years in the space of a few generations, just a quick few generations, it sort of turns to jelly and falls apart. Yeah. Um, and that process starts with the Greco. I hope it's not the case. I hope history proves me wrong on what I'm about to say. But it does look as though things like that are happening to the United States. So some people have said, you know, put it at its earliest, its earliest problem. Some people said something like Woodrow Wilson, um, the establishment of the Federal Reserve or something is a terrible death blow to the Republic. Yeah. Um, or the assassination of John Kennedy something was deeply subverted and broken at that point. It's never been the same since. The administrations of, the administration of Richard Nixon and LBJ, something's going, sort of something's cancerously wrong there. The administration of Joe Biden and the, the politicization of the Supreme Court and the DOJ, there's something wrong with the Republic. And there is- it's, it's dying. And there is. It a, can be. It can be. It might be able to be yeah. saved. It may. It might be able to be re- reversed. But there's something. There's something deeply wrong with it at the moment. Um, and there is an, a pervasive re- atmosphere of anti-constitutional rhetoric. I would say, just the idea that the the chief executive, the president is as powerful as he is. The Founding Fathers never meant it to be like that. Yeah. They, they, it, what the Founding Fathers had in mind and what sort of ran for the first portion of the United States, the history of the Republic of the United States, is not what we have now. Yeah. It's been morphed and um, skewed, subverted in all sorts of ways. Let me, let me um, ask this. Um, when it comes to reading history, I think that sometimes there can be a sort of detachment that history can induce to people, because especially if they try and ask themselves, 
whether there's a lasting form of constitution. Yeah, is it possible at all, ever? It, it seems that there is, no, there is none. But at the end of the day, I, I think that the fact that, for instance, we are fallible beings and we have limitations doesn't mean that we at least shouldn't strive to make things better. Oh, I absolutely agree with you there, Stelios. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Don't, so, don't give up. Don't stop trying. Exactly, because I, yeah. there are many voices who want to portray themselves as... They may be incredibly wise. They may know a lot of history, but they frequently talk with a kind of pessimism and try to portray mm. all human action as futile. And I think that this is particularly problematic because... Mm. It's cancer. I hate it. Doomers. Fatalists. Yeah. Nihilists. Yeah. And there, Despise a, it. I think there is a saying in Herodotus that says that one of the greatest misery is to be to think that you're helpless to prevent a, something like an imminent destruction. I'm, I'm mm. not paraphrasing it well, mm -hmm. but yeah. I think that there is this idea in Herodotus that says that to know that something bad is going to happen and to think that you are helpless to prevent it is great misery. Yeah. And I think that this is a sort of misery that, well, at the end of the day, whether it is grounded or not on historical knowledge, we have moral reasons to react against it. So, okay, uh, let's say uh, I I'm going to die at some point. Does that mean that I'm, I shouldn't strive to make my life as, right. as best as possible? Yeah. Maybe at some point my lineage is going to end. Let's say personal family uh, lineage. Does that mean that I shouldn't care about my family and shouldn't try to raise a good family? I don't think so. Yeah. So I think that at the end of the day, the question isn't, and, and that is what I think is really important about Cicero. At the end of the day, it's not just what is the most lasting constitution, is what is simultaneously the more lasting constitution and just constitution. Mm. And I th mm. what I really like about Cicero is that he definitely gives me the impression that his voice mattered. He, his voice had weight. And he thought that it had weight because he did an unusual amount of preparation for a conventional politician. Mm. That's what I want to say, that he was really well versed into philosophy <clears throat> and he was really someone who tried to incorporate philosophy into everything he did. And that's really important because when he talks about justice, he says we are born for justice. Mm. This is part of what he thinks is an element of wisdom, which is also knowledge of the natural law. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.